Hi Dean, how are you? Fantastic, how are you? Yeah, really well, thank you, really well. Excellent. A little late for you? Uh, just after 10pm, so but it's okay. I don't, yeah. intend, don't intend on going to bed just yet, so... <laughs> Do, but you have a day job, so you're working all day. I have been working all day, yes. Yeah, I've been hard at work looking at spreadsheets and... Um, doing data and uh yeah all that sort of stuff so it's great fun all it work ah, i love it awesome <laughs> and how about you how's your day been today uh let's say uh uh you know i was supposed to drywall this bathroom i'm working on and uh i didn't get to it because the uh, puppy doberman had to uh, go crazy and have a long walk and you know there's a variety of, uh, of bizarre circumstances, for sure. The inspector had to come and look at the windows that were installed in the house uh, the, the last week. So after the windows are installed, an inspector from the city has to come and make sure that you installed, that I didn't install them, another company did. But Really? Yeah. That's oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, we moved to this very bizarre suburb in Michigan that has a very high level of uh, bureaucratic rules, including including this one you like. If you don't remove the snow from the sidewalk that goes in front of your house yeah. inside of 24 hours, they fine you $250. No way. That's outrageous. That's outrageous, right? So what if I'm on vacation? What if I come, you know, and you like, and it snows while you're on vacation? You got to call somebody to come in and just like remove the snow. Or you, you're paying 250 bucks. Like, oh <laughs> That's madness. And I you know. You get a quick buck from the old uh, the government, eh? It's ridiculous. But, you know, we moved. This is a, a suburb of Detroit. We're 14 miles off the Detroit River. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a, a suburban wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> for, for want of a better word, yeah? Yeah. Well, you know, during the war, this is where they're building the tanks and the liberators and all all sorts of stuff for the uh for the second world war we're all in these um really yeah yeah all in this area they all have historic plaques of like this is where the sherman tank came out of this is where the jeep came out of like all of that were was all kind of manufactured around this area that's amazing it's kind of amazing so the car industry basically flipped in 1939 and they just started yeah. churning out more machinery and in that same time, they just started building housing because everybody was flocking here to build war machinery. And post-war, all the cars that came out, you know, all those DeSotos yeah. and those giant 50s and 60s giant steel Cadillacs with the suicide doors and all that. Oh, they were amazing. They were amazing. And they all came out of this area that we're in. So That's, that's so cool. It's so cool. That's so cool. And they drive them around. You see them. Really? Like, oh my God! They have a in August. They it's an unofficial parade, but the main street is called Woodward Avenue, and it's Highway Number One, 
because Henry Ford didn't want mud to be on his Model T when it came off the factory floor. So he paved a section of the road and that became the first highway in North America. So it's designated highway number one. And in August, they do what's called the cruise and all these vintage and souped up and modified uh, hot rods and stuff just sort of drive up and down this uh, eight mile stretch back and forth. And people yeah, put the front chairs. Yeah. I'm assuming that that's actually eight mile. That's actually the, the eight mile is. Eight mile, eight mile is the designation between kind of the poor area and yeah. the rich area. So, and eight mile is also where uh, street racers would drive from streetlight to streetlight. And which is why in drag racing, it's a quarter mile because yeah. the, every streetlight's a quarter mile apart on eight mile road. So, wow. yeah. So, so when all these engineer uh, idiots from Ford and GM were souping up their cars and building these Edelbrock manifolds and stuff like that, they would go after work with these hot rods and they would just open it up from one street light to the next. And that's how they would knew the performance standard of a quarter mile. And that's when it became the National Hot Rod Association. They kept the quarter mile as a designation because of the street lights on eight mile road. Well, I never knew that. I knew, I obviously knew that, that, eight, that it, the quarter mile was to do with lights and how the lights were set up. I never knew that that's, that's what it was from. Yeah, eight mile road, because it's the widest of all the miles. That's the one, it's got like, uh, I guess it's considered three lanes, but yeah. there's a, there's a um, boulevard in between it. So it's got lots of space. So if you like swerve or lose it, you're not going to go into oncoming traffic. You just kind of go into the grass on both sides. Well, I did. I know, that. right? I know. That's, that's, that's like blowing my mind. Detroit is surprisingly historic once you well, get here. Yeah, and it's got obviously, it, it, it's the home of Motown as well, isn't it? Obviously, yeah, famously. Absolutely. And I was doing an animated series called uh, Robocop. Yeah. But I was also doing stand up around North America. So the producers were having a hard time and they said, okay, we'll just give you a call. You tell us what city you're in and we'll find a studio. And they gave me a call. They said, we need you to do like five lines for this episode. What city you're in? I go, I'm in Detroit doing stand-up." And they said, okay, we'll call you back. And they sent me to the original Motown studio designed by Frank Lloyd Wright that was still there. And the chains, that they were using for a lot of the sound effects in a lot of the early Motown, like the, you hear like uh, uh, chains being uh, fallen up and down, that was still in the studio. So Ray Charles had performed there, Michael Jackson performed there, and I recorded my animated series there. That's amazing. It was amazing. Now that's, it's a museum. That's so cool. <laughs> I love, I mean, I'm a huge Motown fan anyway. I love Motown. I grew up with it. Oh yeah, my, yeah. My, my dad was a massive Motown fan, so yeah. I totally grew up with it. So, yeah, it's it's one of the places I would love to go, Detroit, if I ever get. Well, the they're going to build, yeah. So that original studio is now the front to a entire museum that they're building in the back that'll have a performance uh, area outdoor, and then uh, sort of a three-story glass uh, structure of all you know, Motown history and stuff like that so that's amazing really cool. it's that's really so amazing. cool that is so cool 
So let, let's let's talk about your your comedy because because when I was talking to Gary, he was yeah. like, you know who's super funny? My friend Dean. You know, <laughs> he, you might know him. He was he was that guy in X Files, and I was like, what guy? He's like the lone gunman. And I was like, oh my god! And he was like, yes, he was the best man at my wedding. And I was like, that's amazing. And he was like, yeah, he's a he's a, like a comedy genius. So <laughs> did he say that? He did oh. say that. Yes, okay. yes, he did. He did. So, no. um, so, so, why comedy? How how did you get into doing comedy after kind of being so recognisable in the X Files, which I, I definitely need to talk to you about anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the comedy thing is um, uh, innate. Uh, my dad was hilarious. It was the thing, how we communicated with the family. Everybody, my sisters were funny. They, my uh, older sister could do accents from around the world spectacularly. Uh, my mom was hilarious. So, so it was a very fun, funny family. And it wasn't one of those, you know, uh, Titus uh you know chris titus did yeah. you ever see that series yeah where dad's a drunk and like it wasn't all that anger they yeah, expressed yeah, yeah. Itself. it was more just the joy of laughing uh, for hours on end and so from that comedy innate uh i remember my very first gag that i did as a child uh before i was four i think <laughs> I, okay yeah Get this. So we had a spot where the Kleenex, the tissue box, always stood in the kitchen. And, uh, and then I took it and I hid it behind my crib. I pulled the crib back and put the tissue box there and pushed the crib back. And then I just sat in the kitchen area till my mom went to go reach for a tissue. And she said, where's the tissue box? And my eyes lit up and I took her by the hand and I walked her and I pulled back the crib and I went, ah, <laughs> that's a great gag. And she didn't laugh, uh, you know, perhaps my, my level of humor at the age of four. Yeah. Not quite developed, but uh, yeah, cramming the tissue box behind my crib, I would suggest is my very first comedic act. <laughs> and, uh, and it just went from there. So, yeah. And obviously you said that you were, you've done tours and stuff. So have you toured all over? States? Have you... Yes, I did uh, all over the States and Europe. I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival four times in a row. No. Uh, yes. I was, uh, I think between 2005 or six to 2009. And then I uh, met a producer there and then I did a tour of the UK and then toured Europe and did the Swiss Comedy Improv Festival and a couple other festivals around there. And then um, uh, toured North America, uh, played Tel Aviv, uh, did, uh, and a lot of them are sci-fi conventions that I go to, but yeah. then I do my comedy show at the sci-fi convention. So Okay, it's kind of yeah. a two birds, one stone type thing. Exactly, because what I do is I improvise, fully unscripted, based on audience suggestions, dragging people up from the audience on yeah. stage, an episode of The X-Files. So oh, it starts with that, you know, every X-Files episode always had that weird teaser. Yeah. Like maybe somebody dies or maybe there's an alien that suddenly jumps out and then the credits roll. So I do a teaser scene and then I do like a, a government cover up, like some sort of thing. And then I show up with a scene with Mulder 
and I bring somebody up to play Mulder and we do a scene together. And then in the end, I'm the, I'm the hero of the episode and I battle the evil alien or whatever and, uh, and finish off the whole thing. It's about an hour show. And, no. uh, oh yeah, it was so much fun. It's a one man improvised episode of the X-Files. See, that's so different to the sort of comedy we get over here because it's all, you can tell it's all scripted, although it doesn't come across as scripted. Um, right. There isn't, I mean, that I've never seen really, on like locally, never seen any sort of improv, comedic improv. Oh, there's an improv community in the UK and all over. Um, Natalie Haverstock, who's now Miss Balloonverse, the top balloon artist in the world. Uh, she and I knew each other from an improv festival we did together in 94. We're still best of friends. So Miss Balloonverse is an amazing improviser. Um, there, yeah, the impro community is um, is there in in your country, but it but again, it didn't have the same sort of thing that yeah. it had in Canada, and the same traction and the same kind of uh, theatrical um, box yeah. office that we were yeah, doing. Yeah, because improv is quite is quite a big thing in in college campuses, isn't it? There's quite a lot of that that goes around along in college campuses in the states. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Whereas in Vancouver, where I started with Gary, with the Vancouver Theater Sports League, it's now a theater with a $2.1 million operating budget based on sales of tickets. They're that good. Wow. So the training's amazing, the production quality. I mean, it's like, it, it's an amazing, they have their own theater on uh, Vancouver or Granville Island. And uh, if you're ever in Vancouver, you gotta check them out. It's some of the most amazing improv. And I did from, my theater training at university, I went immediately into uh, a show with Gary Jones uh, yeah. and I, and I did 10 shows a week for four and a half years. Yeah. That's yeah. outrageous. That's outrageous. so good. It's so good. At one point, I get up at nine to do a 10 a.m. comedy show at the... Uh, kind of the uh, summer uh, fair that was going on in Vancouver. So I do like two shows, 10 and noon, have some time for lunch and then get to the theater by four and then perform till 2 a.m. and then wake up and do it all again starting at 10 a.m. That was like an entire summer I had where it was like, that was like six shows a day for crying You must out. have been absolutely shattered. Well, surprisingly, the thing about improv is it, it clears, because you're, you're off the top of your head, yeah. it, it's clearing so much. It's like a, it's like a yoga class, believe it or not, okay. where, where it just blows the dust and the cobwebs out of your head because you're blabbing it out in scenes or on stage. And, and so you, you can go through emotional highs and lows. You can say things that you are vaguely thinking about but then they somehow form into a scene um you know whatever fight you had with your girlfriend back then yeah. somehow manifests itself into a scene on stage so you could relive uh you know you know in the shower when you're like oh i should have said that to her yeah you get to do that on stage oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay yeah yeah okay. so That's so there's a lot That's of those so good. it was so good it was so much fun and Gary Jones, holy smokes, there's the comedy genius. That guy, if, you, yeah. if he's telling me one, 
that guy is the funniest thing I've ever seen. See, I can't, and, I, I can't wait to get you and Gary in an interview together because he's, oh he's, he's like, he's like, once you've spoken to Dean, let me see if we can sort something out. We'll, we'll try and do it. So we both go on and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll chat to you for about an hour or so. And we'll just have a laugh and a joke. And I was like, yes, that would be amazing. It would be amazing. Cause you know, I mean, I it, it's over 35 years now that we've known each other. Wow. Seems remarkable. And that we perform together. So it's one thing to know somebody for 35 years. Yeah. It's another thing to perform with someone for 35 years. Because I don't know if he told you this. He auditioned for the X-Files to be Byers, one of the lone gunmen. Yeah. Did he really? No, yeah. he never said that. He never oh, said my God. That. Well, because he didn't get it. I mean, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's one of the, you don't tell the stories of the shows you didn't get, right? No. But you yeah. did, but you did. I did. So, so they cast me first. I had the long hair was actually my hair. And they were like, okay, that's the look and you know, and that sort of thing. So now we're going to read him against like, who's going to be in the suit, right? Cause you need kind of a, a serious guy, but maybe you should have a little if, comedic edge. And so I was reading against um, some very uh, uh, well-known Vancouver actors who often got a lot of work. Gary Jones being one of them, yeah. who had a comedic edge to him because they knew the gunman was going to be sort of a lighter edge to the heaviness of Mulder and Scully and yeah. the truth is out there, right? So, so it's supposed to be a counterpoint. And so I read against, I think it was three other actors. So they kept bringing me in and I would do the same scene from season one, episode 13, uh, called EB. We'd be doing the same scene over and over again. I kept rating my part is Langley. And then they kept bringing these other actors in and Gary was one of them. And we were like, Oh my God, wouldn't that be great? We're in this show together. Oh. And just and back then it was just going to be the one episode. And we're like so excited to be in an episode together. Uh, but then they went with Bruce Harwood, rightly so, because he was a little more reserved. And yeah. so, uh, because they had trouble finding Frohickey, the Frohickey character was the toughest of them. Cause it's like, Oh my God, we, you know, what actor is kind of short and weasley and unshaven? And, and the director goes, you know, like the first AD, the first assistant director, Tom Braidwood, we want something that like short, weasley, unshaven, <laughs> balding, like with glasses. We want the, something like that. And Tom goes, well, you know, I have theater training. I, I'm a graduate of the University of British Columbia theater program. And I'm only assistant directors because, you know, I have two kids and I'm like, and they were like, oh, okay, well, do you want to say these lines? And so Tom Braidwood, for the entire time he was on X-Files as Frohickey, was also the assistant director. And so at times he'd be on the walkie-talkie on certain episodes because they had two assistant directors that switched yeah. back and forth. He'd be going calling people to set and like doing all the AD work and then showing up on camera and being in character and like saying his lines and stuff like that. So, so Tom Braidwood was kind of amazing having the two jobs like that at the same time. I wonder if you got two paychecks for it. <laughs> I think he did. You know what? You, 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 you laugh, but yeah, for sure. Because the, uh, the union for technical workers and the union for actors are two separate unions so for sure he got two. oh he got two paychecks for that that's amazing yeah. but he was i mean all of you were amazing and i 
I love the X Files. Ah, I was you. instantly hooked from the opening two bars of the the theme song because it is so recognizable. It's ridiculous. Oh, you know, you hear Mark it and you instantly is, know, didn't you? Yeah, Mark Snow was a uh, he did a lot of other TV shows, but he, you know, he had a synthesizer and he would, you know, a lot of the uh, shows would just go, "Hey, Mark." Put something out and bing, 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 and they go, great. But Chris Carter made Mark go back two or three times and go, no, you know what? The tone of this show is not what you're doing. So, so he made Mark work to get that. But once he found that thing, and he, and he really appreciated Chris Carter's feedback, yeah. going, you know, it really made him dig deep as a musician to pull out these tones and, and like, uh, you know, because he had to watch a couple episodes to go, this is yeah. what we're going for. It's not, it's not another, you know, what was on in the 90s, you know, Saved by the Bell. <laughs> like I, I try to think other shows that were just coming Mo, yeah, yeah, Saved by the Bell. You had loads of other sort of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, that even came after, I think. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. um, uh, Tom Selleck and uh, not Hawaii Five O. What was it? Miami Slayer. Uh, Magnum P.I. Magnum P.I. Like you think of that, that cheesy music, dun, 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 like all of that. And Airwolf. Remember Airwolf? Yeah, remember Airwolf. Yeah. Love like Airwolf. Airwolf, all of that stuff bookend to the X-Files, if you think yeah. about that. And then the X-Files comes and it changes uh, TV theme music. It changes TV lighting. It changes acting styles. Like suddenly it's like, and, 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 Chris Carter said, we're going to make every episode like a feature film where everybody in every department, art direction, costume, wardrobe, writing, everybody swing for the fences. Do the best you've ever yeah. done. Regardless, don't worry about budget. Don't worry about what came before. This is a completely different thing. And Chris Carter gave the freedom to every department to really go and really, you know, uh, achieve what they've always wanted to do and not be restricted by, well, I don't know, that's not how we do it on television, yeah. right? He was like, uh, he was really brilliant that way. I think as the commander of a ship, Chris Carter is not given enough kudos in terms of what he allowed every department to do to make the show just rise up from everything else that was on TV at the time. Yeah, because it, it, you're right, it did kind of set the the, the the gold standard, didn't it, for TV shows afterwards? Because, like you say, not only was it the music, but you had, you had, you know, the the, the cast: David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, and the way that it was, it was shot. Um, and you can tell from even the very, very first scene of the first episode, you can see that the way that it's shot sets the scene for the entire TV show. It's so, so dark, so like, oh my god, what's going on here? What's going to happen next? And it just. Yeah just goes and you can tell from a from a from a non from an unbiased like from someone who loves tv and who looks past what you can see on the screen yeah you can see just the work that's gone into it from production to editing like you say to lighting as well and the, the costuming it's all perfect, perfect. For, for what the show wants to get across for sure and even the special effects i mean you think about the the um uh, latex and monster work there was a uh, a young company in vancouver and they uh 
he was this kind of genius that was doing all these latex monsters. And based on the X-Files, he grew that company to like 45 employees that were all churning out these amazing, I mean, you think about that uh, cancer monster that, yeah. that vomited himself again, like recloned himself. That was all latex mechanical. That wasn't CGI. Really? That was, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had, in fact, in the window of his um, latex workshop, he had that in as the display of the of the second generation of the cancer monster coming out in the display of his store. There was no signage. You just knew. You saw that. You went, oh, that guy's worked on the X-Files. And yeah, you walked yeah. in and you ordered whatever latex monster you wanted. So, so yeah, there was a lot of phenomenal stuff. And you think about the lighting. I mean, like, you see right there, that's, a, that's what's called a key, or hair light, right? Yeah. So I got my main lights on here, and then I got technically a light back there. But on the X-Files, that would be the ratio, theoretically, it, not to uh, nerd out on my photography roots, but it's a 43 lightning ratio. So you want this to be kind of four times to the three times of brightness there. Their ratio was like five to one Ooh. so that this light would be super bright and that would just be black as yeah. black or vice versa. The front side wouldn't be, would be lit by maybe a tiny little practical light bulb, but you'd have this killer backlight outlining yeah. you know Jillian and so you'd have like all of these weird lighting choices that were never in television before that and then after that because it looked so cool and because of the technology of the cameras that could pick up they were more sensitive at that point so you could just use two flashlights and light the whole scene practically right so you had them going into a dark room two yeah, flashlights yeah. and you had and that was the scene like you didn't need extra lights you didn't put a, a blue filter you know, that was supposed to represent nighttime, like you saw in the Brady Bunch. Every time yeah. they, every time the Brady Bunch family turned off the lights to go to bed, this giant blue light would like suddenly come on them and yeah. like sometimes was mistimed. So they were like, good night, honey, click. All the main lights would go off and then these giant blue lights would like shine on them. It's like, oh, that's ridiculous. So, you know, that production value, now you see it all the time. It's so common. You don't even think yeah. about it. I mean, for, for me, I love a, I love a TV show called Fringe. Oh, yeah, yeah. It so reminds me of the X-Files. It Absolutely. so reminds me of it. It's just you know, John Noble and, yeah. and Anna Thorv. And I saw the first episode and I was like, oh, my God, this is like X-Files, but really nerdy. Really nerdy. And, you know, there was a couple. Uh, I, haven't, uh, I haven't seen Fringe for so long. And I didn't watch it in sequential order. So I was watching it all out of sequence. But there were a couple episodes, including the one where they cut down a tree and there's ancient bugs in it. Yeah. And then Fringe did something similar to that. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, and the writers uh, of the Fringe, because I was at a sci-fi convention and they said specifically in no uncertain terms, it is a direct line from the X-Files to Fringe yeah. in terms of, you know, the writing that they were trying to do, the quality and the uh, atmosphere, like the tone. Yeah, yeah. They were totally doing that tone because they loved it so much. So so that was really cool. Awesome. Really cool to be part of that lineage. Yeah, 100%. And how, how was things on set? I mean, it must have been quite, quite, I guess, dark and moody. 
<laughs> no, that's the weird thing. Really? It was really funny. Jillian's hilarious. David's the one of the, the underrated comedic actors I think I've ever seen. Um, uh, we laugh a lot. Uh, it was light. But then when the scene came on, we'd all, you know, like ground into our character and get the stuff down. But no, everybody was having quite a good time and with a lot of laughs going yeah. on. Yeah, and that was so weird to then watch it on TV going, wow, this is really dark. <laughs> and I sort of remember it kind of being a really good time. And, uh, uh, well, you know, and the gunmen, of course, we were always, you know, the three of us laughing it up off set. Yeah. Uh, when we did um, uh, the episode that was sort of our origin episode called Unusual Suspects. Yep. Uh, they gave us, uh, instead of each of us having our own trailer, we all shared one trailer and we shared David Duchovny's trailer because <laughs> he was down in Los Angeles filming. So we had kind of this luxury <laughs> dressing room tra tra trailer and Tom brought his Nintendo game set and he plugged it in. So we were like playing Nintendo games, the three of us, and then laughing it up and then going to set and shooting our scenes. And we're like, oh, this was like, it was like a college dorm room that I'd never oh, been I to. I can imagine. Oh, it was so great. So a lot of that, you know, uh, was my experience of how it was offset or onset, but off camera. Yeah. And then when we do our stuff on camera, we were all, you know, nailing it and doing our, getting our lines down and stuff like that. But we never got a chance to improvise or anything like that because it was a, you know, big money production. And if you're like going off and saying on a tangent and riffing, everybody's looking at the watch going, you know, what's this costing us? Don't do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because it's costing, it's costing dollars by the second, isn't it? Dollars by the second, for sure. There were some episodes back then, I think like uh, the episode on the, um, on the Queen Mary, where they go back to World War II and it's kind of like this time link and it's all yep. done steady cam. That at the time was the most expensive episode in television history. And I think it worked out to uh, $15,000 a minute. <laughs> I know, I know. And so if you go, okay, if you blow a line and it takes you like a minute to recover, you just cost the production $15,000. That's coming straight out of your paycheck. Yeah, totally, right? Yeah, you, that's what you're thinking. Oh my God, oh, you know, I, I try to save money for everyone, so. How so, long yeah. did it take to do an episode then? To, to kind of film one episode, how long did it sort of take to do? I, I, ideally, it was supposed to take eight days. So uh, pre-production was generally three to four days. The director would be flown in. Uh, everybody would talk about, okay, all that sort of thing. Sets would be built, uh, locations, scouted in four days leading up. Then boom, day one of shooting, you got bang, 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 eight uh, days. So you were trying to get, uh, generally a script's 43 pages. Yeah. No, so you're trying to get five pages a day plus a little bit. So you are running through all your locations, and getting the actors in, invariably that didn't happen. I mean, you know, when you had a submarine coming up through the ice, <laughs> when you had 
300 people burnt to death from a UFO on a bridge on a rainy night. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff, all of those big production numbers would set you back. So what they had to do is normally you have an A crew that deals with the actors and you have a B crew that deals with stuff like hand touches screen, right? So there'd be a close up of like hand yeah. touching screen. And that would be a B camera unit that could do all of that stuff on their own time during the day. Well, they had to include a C unit that came in at 9 p.m. and worked all night to <laughs> till the dawn the next day doing these shots again. So there was so many of these shots that needed redoing that invariably towards the end of the ceiling, the kind of the train went off the rails so that we were shooting out of sequence three or four episodes at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So that there would be an A unit, a B unit, and a C unit, and you'd be assigned to go because sometimes the C unit would deal with actors uh, that the A unit couldn't handle because they were overwhelmed. And that B unit was doing all these sort of secondary shots that were elaborate with UFOs flying in or whatever. And then C unit from like 11 p.m. till sunrise, we're doing all the shots that could be done in the dark that didn't need sun or didn't want sun, right? Because yeah, yeah. daylight was screwing you up. So a lot of the shots that had to be night exterior and stuff like that were done by a, a third unit. And so actors had to go. I know at one time, David Duchovny, and I don't know how the hell he kept this in his head, had four different episodes on the same day that he was shooting sequentially through A unit, B unit, and C unit. And he was keeping it all together in his head. And it was like, you know, I, they don't give Emmys for that kind of thing. They give Emmys yeah. for, oh my God, that was a brilliant performance that you did where you had all the time in the world and you had your acting coach and you had a masseuse and you know, and, and you had your one scene and you had all the time in the world to prepare for it. But to see Duchovny go and run four episodes the same time on the same day through three units, there's got to be an Emmy in that, in that I mean, heroic work. Just even trying to remember lines for a single scene is probably hard enough, but to do four different scenes from different episodes, that's like... Yeah, and keep it straight going, where, where was I emotionally, where's the character emotionally in that one? Where am yeah. I supposed to be in this one? And, you know, I, I, a couple of times I saw his sides and he had notes, so his, I think his uh, acting technique had kind of meticulous note work yeah. on it so, so that I could keep it all straight. And, uh, and so, and I think that's his, you know, days in Princeton um, yeah. as an English major, right? Or yeah, it was English. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that really helped him a lot, but you know, if that was called upon me, I would just be like, what are we doing now? <laughs> like, you know, I'd just be like, I'll just say whatever. You know, it just looked like a mess at the end. So, and, and then you'd have to pay back the money you wasted from improv. <laughs> hey, that's fifteen thousand dollars a minute. <laughs> yeah. Cough up, idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You owe us. Uh, you owe us one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Totally. Can With can your you funny rant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> can I just give you uh, an IOU? <laughs> don't take it out of my next 12 episodes yeah, yeah just take it out a little bit at a time 
from the rest of my paychecks. <laughs> totally. You, were oh on, you did 37 episodes, didn't you? You did 37. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what IMDb didn't... says. It says 37 episodes. Okay, let's say that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I didn't count. No, I mean, because you, you were in, it's, it just seemed like you were in every episode. How, uh, how, how, does it, how does it sort of work? From from your perspective, was it that you were signing on for a single episode, or you were signing on for for like? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So originally, like the first four years, it was single episodes, right? So so they would just call us up, and we come in, and we're day players, and that was great. And then around that time, they were like, okay, so you're guaranteed like five, maybe seven episodes or whatever, but the guarantee was like. If you don't, if we don't do it, we're still, we're not going to pay you. So it wasn't yeah. like a set fee. And then, um, and then around then the spinoff happened. So the Long Gunman spinoff was in and around that point. And, um, and then they brought us back. But then when they brought us back, it was back to, um, I think it was five episodes guaranteed or something like that. And, and, uh, but at that time, you know what? I'm the worst for negotiating. I'm the worst for dealing with. It's just like, oh, you know what? If we're if we're gonna fight about money and deal, like, then I don't want to be an artist. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, that's not why I'm in it. To like, oh, give me, you know, this. Oh, line sixteen on my contract said I get a trailer ninety feet long, and this is eighty-one feet. <laughs> you know, all that. Like, I cannot. Not only can I not deal with it, I, I patently refused to even participate in yeah. those kind of things. So, uh, you know, to the detriment of whatever, my bank account, my other lawyers, you know, <laughs> lawsuits, whatever I've gone through, it's been, it's just, it is a Canadian moral thing that I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, that I battle with, you know. So. Fair enough. Have you have you got a favorite episode that you that you were in? Have you got a favorite? Well, I got to say, Unusual Suspects was really fun, uh, just because of the dorm room mentality. Yeah. And uh, and and you know, and the first time that uh, in our heads it was the producers and the writers and the fans thought enough of us to give us our own episode kind of yeah. thing a, a full on because Jillian was stuck in London on uh, a production that was going long I forget what she was shooting and David was doing his uh first movie where he's a doctor in speedos <laughs> that's all I remember it <laughs> basically there's a shot of him in speedos diving but he's a doctor for the mob or a gangster or something I forget what that movie's called but he was stuck in LA for reshoots and then Jillian was going long and they're like, oh my God, we got to, we got to do season five. We got to start up. What are we going to do? And then everybody went, oh, well, let's just do a gunman origin story. And then we can shoot seven days. David can be come back. We can shoot all the David scenes on the eighth day. And then uh, I don't think Jillian was in it at all. So, so it was just uh gunman. It was X. Um, Stephen Williams, he was in it, and uh, and then uh, David came back, and we shot everything. He's like through the episode, but everything that he 
did was it shot in one day for that one. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of amazing. Because he seems to be throughout the whole episode. But yeah. Yeah, no, no. He did it all in one day. But that, that's down to some fantastic editing then to get that all all in there. I mean, they're all the sort of guys that get, get missed out when it comes to sort of awards and, and praise. Because, you know, it's, it's all well and good filming it, but you've got to piece it together. You've got to get it so that it flows. So it flows, yeah. And that, and that you don't... You don't go, oh my God, this is a, like a completely different day. Or, oh, he just ate lunch. You know, <laughs> he, yeah. he overstuffed himself on pasta and you can see like his energy's way down, like from the first half of the scene to the second half yeah. of the scene. I always like watching any movie. And this it's kind of a game uh, my girlfriend and I play where you have to guess the scene that the actor auditioned for to get the part in the movie that he's in. So, so there's always one scene yeah, where it's yeah. like that actor is like full on in that scene. It's like, oh, you killed my mother or whatever, right? Like it's like this either like emotional or it's like a super thing. And then we'll, like, we'll watch any Netflix thing going, oh, that's his audition scene right yeah. there. Because it, it's also the one where it's like he's most polished and he's yeah. like he's worked on it the most. And then everything else, he's like sort of phoning it in. <laughs> but there's one scene that just threw the roof. No, like, well, I've oh. never thought of playing that. And, and uh, I'm a huge film fan. Like, I mean, I've got uh, my arm. You probably can't see it, but it's all 80s, 80s tattoos. Oh, my God. So How I've got like Blue Brothers and Bill and Ted and um, oh, yeah. The Breakfast Club. And I've got, um, I've got like a Cobra Kai on my arm and oh I mean, my I'm, God. I'm, I'm in a hoodie so I can't can't that's so cool but yeah I, I love my films and you can see in 80s films it's so obvious but nowadays yeah. you you, you kind of can't you kind of can't see it nowadays I mean I, I can't but I think I might have to play that game now it's really kind of fun it's kind of a fun uh thing to like oh my god well, and it's particularly, you know, it's kind of nerdy from a actor standpoint. Yeah. Like, see the uh, the uh, nuts and bolts of it uh, that kind of disappear when they try to make the magic happen. Yeah, that's exactly it. Make the magic happen. Do yeah, you right? do you keep in touch with with any of the guys from? Yeah, Sex for sure. Or? We we have emails. Um, we just did a uh, galaxycon dot com uh, is a online convention. A thing that's going on during this okay. uh, pandemic and uh the three of us were together on a zoom uh thing uh two weeks ago and i think the whole thing can be viewed in retro um and it was kind of fun they were uh, uh talking about uh you know what they're doing and we go to before we were we were at a convention about once a year somewhere around uh, north america um Tom Braidwood, of course, has retired. Yeah. And he's got a cabin up in the Rocky Mountains on a lake oh. that has no internet service that he fishes. And the pictures that he posts on his Instagram are ridiculously gorgeous. And so he comes back into the city uh, for six months. So you have a six-month window to which to communicate with him. <laughs> and if you don't book him for a convention or you don't you know, get something... He heads up to that cabin and you can't talk to him for six months. So that's kind of, so that's Tom's life is really great. Yeah. And then Bruce is doing a lot of theater in Vancouver and um, 
and rating. So Bruce and I keeping a lot of touch. He's still, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, he's direct. He's communicating with his uh, fan group. Like he's got a certain bunch because he's very literate. Uh, yeah. He, th- yeah, he, he doesn't watch that much movies and TV. He reads a lot. Um, and he goes to a hotel once a year. I don't know if he's still doing this, but a hotel in Oregon on the coast where every room is specifically designed to an author. So there's the Edgar Allan Poe room, there's the yeah. Jossa room, there is the Thoreau room. Like, I wouldn't even know what the design is. But then you come down and all these people don't watch TV and they are seated at uh, tables. And as the waiter serves the food, uh, he suggests a topic of conversation. Huh. And then everybody at the table converses about this topic, uh, strangers. But he loves it because he knows that in this hotel, nobody watches TV, so no one will recognize him. So no one will know who he is. Yeah. Uh, and so he can converse at length about, you know, the work of uh, Sylvia Plath or yeah, I don't know, yeah. whatever the hell it is. But But he is well read. He works. He volunteers at the Vancouver Public Library, where he's never recognized, even though people have come up to him. He said one time, he goes, this guy's checking out all these X-File books. He goes, oh, I love the X-File so much. He goes, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, I love everything about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's thinking any moment this guy's going to, he's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go read all these X-File books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing. The guy did not even think that, you know, a guy from the X-Files would work at the library. So... That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? That's, that, is, that is insane. That really is. But to be fair, Bruce, you know, he's a jeans and sweatshirt guy in yeah. real life. So without the suit, you're like, man, maybe. But you seem like just a hippie with a beard, <laughs> like, you know, like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. You know? Yeah. You know, you know, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not the, the narc. That we, no, we, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Dean. Honestly, thank you so much. It's been an thank absolute you. blast, man. Honestly. Okay. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dean. Take care. Take care, buddy. See you, man. Bye.